Eleanor Cardwell from the England Roses. You're listening to the Half Court Press. This is Ryan Gosmark from Belgium Rugby and you're listening to Half Court Press Podcast. Hi, my name is Julie Penny Ibsen and you are listening to the Half Court Press Podcast. <laughs> Grassroot Sports is the seventh season of the Half Court Press Podcast. In this series, Theo McLeod talks to a variety of sports professionals about how they think youth team players should be developed. This is Chris Faust in Halfcourt Brass, the Austrian ladies head coach, indoor, outdoor, A team and under 21. Hello and welcome back to the Halfcourt Press podcast. This is our new season focusing on grassroots sports. Today we have a a football coach from uh, from Yorkshire in England, but is currently living out in Mexico. Mike Lineker. Hey, Mike. How you doing? Hey, Teo. I'm good. Yourself? Not too bad. Not too bad. So, Mike, tell us a bit about yourself. What are you yeah. doing in Mexico? I mean, I've been I've been in Mexico now for 13 years. I arrived um, August 2007, um, primarily to take up a position as a football coach in a private school. Um, and then the following year, I decided that I would be able to do this myself and set up my own football school. Um, alongside that, when I was setting up my business, I obviously had to take on a little bit of extra work. So I became a PE teacher as well. Um, so I've had around about 10, 11 years experience of teaching PE and football coaching in, uh, in Mexico City. I'm originally from Leeds, as you said, Yorkshire. Um, Main sports throughout my life have been football and cricket. Football was the, the big one for me. Cricket was kind of my summer um, resting sport, so keep me active whilst I was kind of not playing football. And um, I think I had quite a lot of success as a youth, really. I, I managed to play my local representative teams, um, end up representing Leeds City Boys for, for five years. Um, through that, I was scouted and, and played in the academy at Sheffield Wednesday. Um, and then as things go on and you get a bit older, unfortunately, studies and football just weren't really working at the same time, kind of slipping in, in both and decided to leave the football side of things and really concentrate on my studies. So can't say that the football ended because studying took me to... Um, the University of Wales Bangor, where I studied sports science and Spanish. And then my third year abroad, I um, went to the University of Valencia, um, obviously using my language, but a great, great year, played for the, the university football team there as well. So I had the opportunity to travel around Spain playing football. And then finally returned for my final year of uni um, and played for Bangor City in the Welsh Premiership whilst I was studying. So. Um, yeah, some real fantastic footballing experiences. The cricket's always been there. Played for my rep side when I was younger as well. Um, but it was always kind of, what do I do in the summer whilst I can't play football? And that's the kind of side of cricket which I've always taken. More recently, amateur stuff in Mexico. I've been playing regularly here. Um, but as the years have caught up with me, I've become slower and it's it's taken its toll a little bit. So, um, and of course, right now in the pandemic, no football, no cricket. I'm just trying to keep myself fit. Yeah, it's it's been hard. I've uh, I've put on a bit of timber myself. I was finally getting into good shape after 
after putting a bit of weight a couple of years ago in the shop with gyms down in Scotland. <laughs> definitely not an easy time. Um, however, you've got to make the most of what you've got at this moment in time. Got, I'm, I'm lucky I've got a, um, a static bicycle that was static for a long time and it's been, I've managed to move those pedals a little bit in more recent months and actually taken to jogging a little bit. So I'm trying to, trying to keep fit. You've got a young lad as well, haven't you? Have you been doing any, any toddler, toddler push-ups or anything like this? No, but chasing him around the condominium certainly is a, a challenge in itself. So yeah, it keeps me on my toes. Jumping on a trampoline, that's pretty good. Nice one. Um, so how does England and Mexico, how does England and Mexico compare in terms of youth development? I think for me, um, England is definitely much more structured. Um, there's a definite clear pathway, which I think all leagues and clubs mainly buy into. You know that there are selections at different age groups, so high-ability players um, get the opportunity to be scouted. The scouting network itself as well, I think, it exists much more in, in the UK. Um, and that means that the higher-level player can then be guided into higher-level coaching setups. Mexico itself, unfortunately, lacks quite a lot of structure and organisation, especially at the at the lower levels. Um, it's very much a an each to their own kind of attitude, and for that reason, there must be an infinite amount of players who end up on the wrong kind of path, or are misguided by the parents or egotistical coaches who are either looking for kickbacks when recommending players to professional clubs, or or really just misguide a lot of a lot of youngsters. So. Um, I like to think that in the UK, we've definitely got that structure that exists and anybody that does have an ability or talent um, definitely gets guided and pushed towards where they need to be to challenge themselves. Mexico does struggle in that respect. There's a lot of businesses that are formed out of really just a pay-to-play kind of model. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, I appreciate having lived here what exists in England particularly. Is it still a trial-based setup in in um, like a centralised trials thing in Mexico? Mexico, no. Um, there's an infinite amount of youth clubs that have set up, so you you basically get um, sort of replica professional clubs um, that most of the time don't actually have anything to do with the professional setup. Um, so anybody can put a name to a school for instance out here we've got professional clubs like Club America, Cruz Azul, Chivas and all of a sudden a satellite school will pop up um, where they will be selling their vision of oh well at least once a year we will be receiving a scout who comes here from the professional club and you might get the opportunity to go and, and train there but the reality of it is that quite often it's uh, a bit fake really and um, and it's just they charge astronomical fees for kids to come in. That that means that the 85% of the population really don't get the opportunity to receive value of that coaching. Quite often the coaches aren't even um, capacitated to be able to, to to train youngsters. You find a lot of people who base their coaching on, on experiences um, that they've played. Um, and unfortunately that, it just, yeah, what you're saying, it just doesn't really exist. So before we go further, perhaps we should 
try and distinguish the difference between senior sport and youth sport. What, it, what, what is unique about youth sport which is different to senior sports? What are the similarities? I would, I would say from my perspective, I think the main difference is that senior sport is more outcome oriented. The result matters across all levels of participation. So from Sunday league football up to professional. Um, and for me in youth sports, albeit there are many people still focused on the outcome, it should be more about the process. Um, unfortunately, where there's competition, there will always be an emphasis on the result. But the, in, in reality, youth sport is always kind of a learning experience and we should never lose sight of that fact. So the process is really important, much more than the, much more than the outcome, which I think when you get to senior level, um, it's all about winning, whether it be on a Sunday morning or a or midweek seven aside, five aside, things like that. That that results based philosophy versus learning outcomes. What's that like in Mexico, and how does that compare to life back home in Yorkshire, England? I mean, I've been away from the UK for a while, and. <laughs> I've I've been lucky and obviously I've hired coaches who've come out more recently and and I do get a bit disillusioned in Mexico because really that results um, based outcome exists across all levels not of sport and ages and abilities here in Mexico if you're not winning on a Saturday morning um, having coached midweek then the reality is that parents will be unhappy. Um, they don't really understand the theory behind what you're trying to teach them. If you're not lumping the ball forward in football as quickly as possible as you can to get it away from our goal, um, then um, you're always going to run the risk of other kids or other teams that are slightly stronger than you taking the ball from your defenders and scoring goals. And that, for that reason, you're going you're gonna to lose some mistakes. Um, for youth players in particular are just massively frowned upon they're not seen as learning experiences and and the relevant is that there's not much patience for 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 the process um, which is really um, for me kind of disheartening when you're kind of trying to promote your philosophy and your methodology in that sense of things having people come out and coach for me I do think that it still exists in the UK as well I think there's a lot of parents who Yes, they are guided into the FA model where they've got to complete their level one and I think beyond that, the youth modules that exist. But is it just a ticking box kind of, I've got to hit that in order to be able to run my son's football team and then once I've done that, I can implement my own philosophy, which is, again, kind of results-based. I do think there's a change. I do think there's more qualified coaches in the UK right now that are believing in what they're doing. I've seen league structures as well that support that. Um, but unfortunately, there's a lot of things here in Mexico that do not support the process over the, over the outcome philosophy. How, how do you change the cult? Uh, how do you change a culture like, like that then? How do you, how do you make adaptations? How do you improve things? I like to think that we set examples um, so something that I've done more recently here is I set up my own tournament. Um, Mexico lends itself for that. You don't need to be necessarily affiliated to the football federation. Um, so I invited a few clubs that were quite close to where we played to set up our own league or tournament. 
um, starting with the youngest age group. So we ended up with, I think, um, six and seven-year-olds playing 5v5. That's something that doesn't exist here. They get pushed into 11v11 as soon as possibly can. Um, absurd, really, when you see seven-year-olds running around a massive pitch um, trying to get a touch of the ball. Um, so, yeah, I did 5v5. I pushed it up to 7v7 when they got slightly older. And um, then the next step would be 9v9. Unfortunately, the pandemic hit and it kind of put a halt to everything. But I think leading by example, the, definitely the, the, the competition side of things, getting that correct um, in terms of the tournament, because that's the opportunity that you have for educating the parents. So bringing the parents in to watch the games. I mean, the parents watch training, but they're, they're watching, kind of not watching. Um, so when they see their children playing, they get to experience the innovative rules that sometimes you put in um, and the theory and philosophy behind why they're playing the competition in which they're doing that. If that was to grow, I think sharing that philosophy across more clubs would be the one way of doing it. And then hopefully getting the opportunity to present that model of competition um, and then perhaps receiving um, higher profile um, people from the Federation to come in and look at your work, both in the training environment and the competitive environment um, would go a long way to, to changing that mentality. But it's, it's definitely hard work. It's not something that you do from one year to the next. Um, and aside from that, you would need um, collaboration on part of the Federation to be able to control what goes on so you you attack it from two sides you've got top to bottom and then from what we're doing at the bottom trying to to um, divulge that information to to other coaches and clubs around around the area i find i find the the league structure interesting and the, and the competitions and tournaments that ha that happen for youth team players and 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 how the clubs interact with that um, I find it, I, the, the, the Mexican approach, when I lived in Mexico, it seemed quite a libertarian culture, mm -hmm. which, which, goes, which has its drawbacks in terms of uh, lack of uh, regulation, but also you can, if, it's not, if it's not been done properly, you can go and do, do your thing in the way you want to do, which is quite interesting. Um, mm -hmm. the, the, the league structures and the tournaments, um, how important are they for youth team players? When should youth team players begin playing competitive sports? The league structures are massively important. Um, something that I've become aware of more recently over here, um, but that is occurring in the UK, is that a lot of people, for instance, right now in this month of August, where, the, um, where competitive football has been allowed to, to take place again, have been looking for friendlies and they're labelling their teams as C teams, B teams, A teams. So there's definite divisions based upon ability or that's how I understand it. And I know that occurs in, in Barcelona and, and Spain with, um, they use different terms there, which isn't so um, labelled as A, B and C. Um, and it's massively important. Getting the, getting the competition and the level of the standard of play correct for the level of player that you are coaching will only help to improve the standard of play across all levels. So for me, 
part of my philosophy is that it should be really all inclusive. If a child arrives at your football school and wants to learn to play football, irrespective of his technical ability, physical ability, they should have that opportunity. What does competition do? Competition provides them an opportunity to be able to test their ability. So should it occur at all levels? Yes, I think it should occur at all levels, but it needs to be that you don't just have that standout player who ruins the game for everybody else. There should be a level of competition for every single level of player. Um, and that should be across all sports, really. You will have pathways for more advanced players, but there should always be that pathway for, for children who love the game um, and want to test themselves. They want to play and should never be left kind of on the bench, waiting their turns, and not getting time on the field to be able to to participate in what they love doing. There was a there was a an idea in 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 England in the UK, which was being um, run out. Where what they found was for five and six year olds, and they're playing four side, five side, whatever they're playing. It was the coaches and the parents who cared about the, the result and the league position. The players wouldn't remember, wouldn't really be aware of what was going on from week to week. True. It was, we can have a result on the day, but when you go play another game in your, we call it a group, we've got a group of teams who will play each other locally, and yeah. then the, what happens on the day doesn't matter for the next week. Yeah, I think it's important to distinguish what competition is because you've got competition that then leads to a result. The result, I've had 10-year-olds who couldn't tell you the scoreline at the end of a game who were even quite good players, especially if one team scoring a lot of goals, they, they, they tend to exaggerate. Um, oh, like we, if they lost, for example, it would be, oh, we only lost by five when in the reality of it, they might have lost by 10. Or, and if they win by the same scoreline, it would be, ah, well, we won by 15, 16 goals rather than perhaps the six or seven that they won by. So distinguishing competition from results is really important. Competition provides opportunity for children to test their abilities. Um, so competition should be promoted um, across all levels. But the, 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 the um, recording of scores and things, I think that could come in at a later date where it becomes more important and children are much more aware of what's happened in the game. Um, when, would you, when would you generally bring that in? Um, I mean, we read a little bit of literature on it and we were starting from around about 13 years of age. The reality before that was that parents demand to see the results and you do get drawn into that a little bit where they want to see a website where they can see the level and standard of, of the teams that are around and because they have the option to be able to say, oh, well, I can choose between five or six football schools. I need a place to be able to review which football school is the best. And in their eyes, that would be looking at results, looking at league tables, and then upon that deciding, oh, well, number one place team is the best team, therefore I would take my child there. So for me, personally, I think as soon as players begin to become much more aware of the results and standings is 
is when they begin in their teens and that kind of links up with them moving from when we're talking about football nine aside to 11 aside um, and you start formalizing and introducing rules like offside and things like that so I think the 13 years more or less is is where it should be but there could always be an opportunity for the lower level perhaps less ability players to still continue participating competing but maybe not recording scores it kind of links in with moving up that pathway towards more elite level, advanced level sport. How long should uh, competitions, seasons last for, for, for young players? Is it age dependent? Yeah, that's an, that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, the season itself, you definitely need breaks throughout the year. Um, even at top level, the, the difference between the UK and Europe where they have their, their Christmas break um, has massive benefits for, the, for many of the European teams, whereas in, in Britain, um, we don't really respect that. And quite often there's this kind of overplaying risk of injuries and things like that. Seasons in new sport, I think, could be drastically modified. You could have summer tournaments it could be broken up summer tournaments winter tournaments spring tournaments you could have four tournaments throughout the year um which could be short blasts of of competitive games for for children um i think the one long year tournament which is what obviously the premier league and the, and the massive leagues around the world do um could be replicated when you get to the more advanced level of sports and, and when children are more like adults are, are older. But um, you often see a lot of advances in children when they've been away from the academies and the football schools, for instance, the opportunity just to relax and play a different sport in the summer um, gives them a chance to grow, gives them a chance to, 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 to develop other skills. Particularly, so I would be more for um, having much more breaks throughout the year. Would that allow for um, some for a, a young player to go away and try a different sport and come back and have a multi sports education? Would that be a good thing? I I I would definitely think so. Yeah, I think um, there's plenty of literature out there and experiences that being talented or having the opportunity to to, to practice different sports. The skills are transferable um, and you can often learn um, a lot of different things from different different activities. Even having the opportunity to practice an individual sport compared to a team sport gives you that experience of the demands upon yourself compared to the demands within a team, teamwork, different values. Um, I, would, I would definitely say that there's... Um, there's huge benefits in being able to go away, practice different sports and come back and, and potentially play, play or even improve in your main main sport. Now this links into a point which you, um, or this might link into a point which you made earlier in terms of if a, if a young player or a child is, is developing slowly or isn't quite on the same level as, as, as some more, say, say some more experienced youth team players. 
I mean, th could this be quite a useful way of helping them to catch up, allowing them exposure to different sports and the time to do that? Yeah. Um, anybody that's anybody that's not quite on the same level of of ability. Um, when we come to kind of sports coaching, it's important to cater for them, give them opportunities. Um, something that I've not so much learnt more recently, become more aware having recently completed my PGC was the fact of differentiation. You need to be able to cater the educational environment to their needs. So more often than not, I would say the majority of coaches around the world are actually coaching and different ability players um, so you will have mixed ability within your groups and I am fairly aware that there will be perhaps more of the weaker coaches or poor coaches that unfortunately do not do that they don't cater for that they look at the best players they put on sessions for the best players and quite often the weaker players get left behind and then you get a lot of dropout and dropout is a phenomenon that's that's been around for years and years and people are looking into why and and um, and really our quite a big challenge for us is being able to cater our coaching put on exercises in which all levels of players have the opportunity to be challenged they get the opportunity to enjoy what they're doing um, and really it's, it's kind of a difficult concept to do but um, something that the good coaches definitely achieve in their sessions so specifically um, perhaps you, you can maybe give us an, an example if a player is a slow developer or not quite there yet how do you include them what's the practicalities of that um, really I think something that, that, that is available and has been in, we've known about for a long time in the FA um, is the far corner model where you're looking at not just their technical ability and physical ability, but you might find that a child who sometimes finds it difficult to transfer their knowledge to their body, to their feet, um, is actually very receptive to the coaching itself. So you can challenge them mentally by questioning them about, oh, what have you done here? How could you perhaps have taken a better decision? Um, lots of kind of questions that will then develop their mind to be able to perhaps imagine a scenario in which they are performing better and then their body will catch up perhaps six months, a year, two years down the line. But developing their social emotional side, their definitely their knowledge um, will um, obviously then improve their ability a, a bit further down. I suppose this is this goes into the uh, learning learning stages. When you, when you when you when you're a novice, it's it's very front of brain. When you get better, it becomes more subconscious, uh -huh. which leads into what Matthew Saeed, the uh, ping pong player, and sportsman, uh, called elite amnesia. You think yeah. that's how to explain it when it's at the top level, but um, yeah, I mean, what what you what you were talking about there is when you begin something, you have to think about it a lot more than you might do later on. Yeah, is that is that what your what your experience, experiences are? Yeah, I think um, 
yeah, kind of in your, your unconsciously competent. I think that's what we're all trying to achieve. Um, so it come, becomes very natural um, in that sense of things. And really, um, you do things without really having to think about them. The brain is so important um, in terms of all levels of, 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 of playing that um, when you even get up to the elite level, I think that becomes the psychology of sport becomes the defining factor in many of the outcomes in, in, uh, in top games, top sport, um, the way that you prepare your mind for things. So why don't we train that from, from minute one? Why don't we create those experiences for, for all ability children um, to be able to cope um, with the different scenarios and situations that they find themselves in? So, yeah, the, the objective and the idea would be to, to that you become and you do it subconsciously. When... When we were talking about uh, competition and and including your your diverse range of abilities within your group, you you mentioned there was well you implied that there might be that there might be a difference between elite level and maybe social sports. Yeah. Um, could you tell us a bit, a bit more about that? Give us a bit more of an insight into your into your perspective. Um, really, the, the, I mean, the, the, the key difference between elite level and social sport is that elite, you're obviously looking at advanced. It, it relates to the advanced players, doesn't it? So you're providing advanced ability players an opportunity to be able to compete and train with like-abled and like-minded players. Whereas in social sport, you quite often get a vast array of abilities who are competing on the same playing field and quite often you have standout, um, standout players. And that, I, I suggest, goes across all different levels. The enjoyment factor, the experience factor, the, the learning factor, I think, remains important across all levels. So long as they're being challenged um, at the elite level, um, they should be still enjoying it. And I think social level, people often kind of correspond that with, okay, I'm just playing to enjoy, but really an enjoyment factor should occur across all levels. Um, I am also a big believer in that the experiences that are gained from both social and elite should be high and educational experiences, you should always be learning. Um, and really that, kind of exists or should exist um, across all levels at the same time. So in terms of coaching, would you coach uh, a social team differently to an elite team? Would you give them different information? Would you give them, would you look to create different experiences for them? Yeah, I think you need to understand what the goals of the team are. Um, so you kind of go back to that classic smarter goal setting approach um, where it needs to be specific to the aims of the team um, I would dare say that in a, an elite level competition they're very much um, outcome orientated whereas a social um, team could be just playing because they want to socialize with their friends it's the enjoyment factor the participation factor rather than the 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 outcome at the end um, it's kind of interesting that you mention it because it's something that I um, 
did a research on for my sports science degree um, where I was looking at the, um, the differences between a university football team in Spain, in Valencia and, and in the UK for why the players actually join the team. And to be honest with you, in, in, in Wales, a lot of the teams came from, a lot of the, the students that, that form part of the university foot first team came from different cities from around the UK. Some of us traveled three hours, others an hour. We had uh, players from different countries within that team. Um, and the main focus, the main aim of that university football team was, was a social aspect. It was getting people together to meet new people. I myself didn't know anybody at university, therefore I joined the football team to meet people. Whereas in Spain, when I was living there, it was interesting to see that a lot of the students actually went to the university. It was quite close to home. So in fact, on a weekend, they lived at home, even though perhaps they lived in, in the halls of residence or an apartment throughout the week. They knew the players on the football team from, from playing with them before arriving at university. And the actual university team became more outcome orientated. Um, and I think that would be the same... Um, it's a good guide as, as to see elite competition versus versus social competition. I think that outcome is really important to the elite and perhaps joining a sports and social club, you know that, yes, you can play football, but the social side of things is really important. My, my experience of, of uh, university sport, I was playing for the my uni's hockey second team and it was... Should we say a lot of um, post-game carb loading, yeah, in a liquid form, um, uh-huh. and on a Wednesday as well after training. Um, it was uh, yeah, it was very much a bunch of people, men and women, in their late teens, early twenties, getting together, like you say, for social reasons. But if I take my if I take my universe experience, that's where we go back to the previous uh, point about structure and. and the scouting network. I mean, I was playing university football team and I got scouted and I had the opportunity, even at my age of what will it have been 20, I could still go and play to the highest possible level for myself um, and challenge myself in an environment that was perhaps beyond the social team, which I was playing in the university. I still had the opportunity and the structure still existed to be able to offer me that opportunity. So in terms of youth sports, youth football, youth cricket potentially, at what time, at what age does it stop being purely social and start being an element of uh, competition, uh, an elite level competition? When, when should players specialise? Um, I think that's nearly, that's nearly two questions in one there. Specialization, I don't, I, I, I think players can go um, potentially throughout nearly their whole lives without necessarily having to specialize. If we, if we consider specialization being, okay, I've been playing two sports, three sports, um, all my youth life, um, and now, because I'm becoming more serious in one, I have to give one up. I don't think it has to. I don't think it has to occur 
until you really do need to make that decision perhaps when you're 17 18 19 like you've been offered a professional contract to be able to join somebody um so i would definitely not i would definitely say that there are many benefits to multi-sport education throughout the whole of your youth career because or your youth pathway let's just say like that because there are many different skills you will pick up from different disciplines as you advance in tennis which is very much an individual sport you will learn many more individual skills and and develop those even further which could then be applied into a team concept um, if you're advancing at the same rate or perhaps quicker in in football for example or rugby it will only benefit you in the, in, in the future for instance in an in, in individual um, experience that you have perhaps taking a penalty in a in a final that individual development that you had in tennis will help you in that team environment so i i would be i would strongly advise against um specializing from from early ages particularly um so and and i i i couldn't put an age on it because you never know when you might be able when you might be offered that professional opportunity you look at wayne rooney it might have been was it 15 years 16 years old when he finally got his professional debut that might be where the contract itself dictates that okay you've got to give up now your your tennis or you've got to give up your other um other commitments in other sports um for others it might be later in life i believe rain rooney held the record for the youngest premier league appearance uh until a certain a certain other yorkshireman broke this record by a few days James Milner. Yeah, played for Leeds, wasn't it? I suppose, I suppose in terms of specialisation uh, of, of a sport, uh, specialisation of a position would go hand in hand with that. Yeah, from my perspective, definitely. I mean, you, you, there, there are an infinite amount of examples of, if we look at football, for example, where players have um, had to adapt, change position, um i can certainly speak from my experience that the final position of the highest level which was in the welsh prem that i was playing was a position that i'd not played very much throughout my whole career and i've been a left foot and my my right foot is very much a standing foot unfortunately and uh i think you know, it's, a, it's a wooden peg mate yeah. <laughs> but it ended up being i i ended up playing on the right wing um, in the in perhaps the highest level of of football that I've actually played in, whereas I was always a left sided player growing up. Were you cut um, inside a lot, or, or what? I think that was the intention to cut inside. There was also an argument that um, I was quite pacey at that age, and um, the guy who was the manager of the team at the time, which was Clayton Blackmore, um, he actually requested that I played on the right side of the of the team just to cover him in case he couldn't get back. Um, in time for or, or cover with his pace, should we just put it like that? Um, so yeah, there was there was that um, position specific shouldn't shouldn't really occur. There's um, there's even up to the elite level right now. Um, 
you look at a manager like Marcelo Bielsa, who's actually had a central defender, um, Ben White, playing all year for Leeds United, who when with the best defensive record in the league, a lot of people would say, well, I'm not changing my defence. However, when the central midfielder was unavailable, that central defender became the central midfielder. Therefore, he had to be able to know how to play at least the two positions. Um, and that was more important than him to, to then to maintain his back four, which was the, the best defensive back four in the league throughout the, the whole year. Well, um, Bielsa's uh, prodigy, so to speak, Pep Guardiola. Yeah, yeah Philip Lahm, like... Um, Underlapping into into a holding midfield role at one point, didn't he? At yeah, that, I mean, similar sort of thing. I think you're talking about there. Yeah, yeah. So why would you, at a younger age, be coaching a child into a specific position? It just doesn't make sense because you might they might be asked to play a different role when they become older. So you need to be able to give them all the skills to be able to play all the roles. Um, throughout their whole life. And I think that that then ties into everything else that we've discussed in this in this conversation, in the the level of coaching, the ability of coaches um, needs to be catered towards and focused on the player. And what's the benefits of the player? We're not worried about the results. It's about giving skills that you will sacrifice the results if you end up rotating positions for a game or rotating a few players out of positions because they will make mistakes within them. Do you want mistakes to happen? Of course you want mistakes to happen because they become learning um, opportunities for the players. So it's, it's, it's all interlinked and I think it's um, a good coach will know that, will have the patience for that and would hopefully educate the parents so that they understand that at the same time um, so that there's patience there. And that's really, really important. I read somewhere that Ashley Cole started out as a forward. Uh-huh. There's, there's an infinite examples. Yeah. He, he, he became probably the world's best overlapping fullback, wingback, didn't he, for at least a year. Yeah. yeah. Um, apparently, Kevin Keegan started out as a, uh, as a goalkeeper uh-huh. until he stopped growing about 15. So that's yeah. a that's a as a, a biological growth thing, isn't it? You, you know, we don't really know how how the the players going to turn out. Goalkeepers, uh, goalkeepers are an interesting one because um, I've had lots of experience of of youth players in particular standing in goal and actually educating themselves on what's going on in front of them, and they've been able to read the game. They've been able to obviously take the time because quite often they're not as involved as, a, as an outfield player in terms of the movements, the touches of the ball, especially with the feet. And they've developed a knowledge that then permits them to be able to play to a much better standard outfield. So the, the aspect of teaching children mentally is extremely important. And that's where the individual, where we, we, we then return again back to back to how do you coach different ability players well if you're talking about physical ability technical ability make sure you're still challenging them mentally 
in terms of parenting, uh, you've mentioned parents and how they interact with the teams and the players quite a lot in this interview. How do you deal with parents? What's the best way to deal with parents? Firstly, what, is a, what makes a tricky parent? Okay. How do you deal with that? I think a tricky parent, there's a, there's a, a term from the, from the US, isn't there, which is that helicopter parent where the parent wants to be, um, is very much on top of their child is trying to avoid negative experiences from them. They're overprotective, to say it like that. Um, and in that sense, unfortunately, when they become overprotective, they become um, very much involved and over-involved in what their child is experiencing, both in the training field and in competition. So I, I would say, uh, in the sports context, um, an, an undesirable parent would be that that parent who is too close to their child, is giving them quite often contradictory instructions before a game, so in the car when they're travelling, during the game when they're shouting, um, out different commands and things, and after the game when they're perhaps still hung up on an experience that's occurred in a match um, and they drill that experience, that negative experience into their child um, subconsciously because they continue talking about it. Oh, you should have done this, you should have done that, that would have been better. And yes, there is an area for reflecting on your performance, but if it's not done correctly by the correct person, then, then yes, it'd be it can be quite damaging for a player and that's where you end up with dropouts and things like that or the enjoyment factor is lost. So I think um, in that respect, that would for me be, be a bad example of, of, of parenting. Um, how do you counteract that? I think if you get into a, a well-established coaching environment, be it whatever level, then the club or the, 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 that environment will then become not only educators to the players, but they should and they do have a responsibility to educate the parents. So the classic thing is sharing of information. Can you share the reasons why you are doing something with the parents who will then have, um, that could affect that before, middle and after? Um, so you educate them on why is it important not to build up the game before on your in your car journey to a match. Why is it important not to be shouting out commands throughout the match, and why is it important sometimes just to just to focus on something else on the car journey home? Um, but but yeah, a good club I think would begin with workshops. Would begin by presenting the philosophy and the methodology of the, what you're doing and why you're doing it. Um, and then that would be a way to involve the parents in the whole ethos. And I think it happens in, in good educational establishments like in schools. Why do we do it? We do this because of this. Um, and getting the parents on board in that sense will also make them feel like they've got a role to play in their child's development. Um, but that role is controlled and we've educated the parents on how to do that which will only then support the, the whole process for, 
for for the players and the athletes that are participating in the sport. When I was going through my coaching badges in my early 20s, something st- st- stood out to me of after the match, if, you, if, you, if you're asking a, uh, a child or youth team player about a match afterwards, after the, after the fact, it's, it's less of, it's not so much of, did you win? Did you score? Did you do something um, quantifiable? It's, did you have fun? Did you enjoy it? Did you did you did you learn something new? Yeah, it's yeah. big steps towards that, and um, it's definitely more of a positive move forward for for reflecting practices on your performance. In terms of social economic issues, how much does the financial costs affect youth development in your sport in terms of travel, equipment, nutrition? Um, football in particular has always kind of been that working class sport. I know now from living in Mexico and working in this environment that um, anyone can play, but it's where they play, in what environments they play, Um, And how do they develop? I strongly believe that some of the best players in the world developed from backgrounds that were quite socioeconomically challenging. Um, What did they have as their downtime? What what did they have as an option to be able to, to quite often entertain themselves, which was to the most simplest thing, grab a ball, go outside, play football on the streets. What did they do there? They honed their skills, they, they challenged themselves, and they developed quite a lot of technique. Um, therefore, socially, economically, I think you can. Really, there are no boundaries in that sense. But when you're looking at the organized level or the organized side of, of sports, um, here in Mexico, quite often in order to be able to afford the coaching players will have to pay to play and fees are quite high i know that exists in the us as well that pay to play model um, is actually quite a hindrance to the development of many players because there'll be an infinite amount of of athletes that unfortunately cannot afford to be able to have organized um, specific, specialised, professional coaching. That, in a sense, also exists here in Mexico, but I do believe the fees aren't quite as high as what, what they are in the States. We go back to the structure of football. That's just the way, unfortunately, with, due to a lack of structure. Anyone can open a football school. Anyone can turn it into a business. And when you start thinking of it as a business, you return to that pay-to-play model and fees are need to be recuperated for paying for coaching coaching costs and things and similarly leagues anyone can set up their league there's a fee to join the league the leagues are businesses therefore they need to be earning there's profit margins and they I think in Mexico 85% of the population is below a certain kind of threshold and they wouldn't be able to afford that so it kind of drives away the talent, unfortunately. One thing I became 
loosely aware of him when I was living in Mexico. Mexico City was, whereas when I was 12, 13, 14 years old, if I was bored or a bit tense from school, I could go, I could get a football, knock on my mate's door and boot the ball around for an hour in a local park. Whereas, uh, whereas that's, we have that disorganised sport where, you, where kids will naturally create their own games which subconsciously educate them on cognitive uh, abilities. In, in Mexico, a lot of parents were arguably quite rightly worried about the higher rates of kidnapping, especially for young girls. Where, so therefore, it is when they do play sports, it is very, very organised. They don't they lack that disorganised education, which, which is so important, I think. Um, that definitely depends on the circles in which you're moving, um, because I'm very aware of in certain other areas within the city, there, there's definitely that disorganisation, that chaotic approach to learning and playing and organisation um, it just really does depend on the social circles in which you're moving unfortunately within this city once you being a, a, from Europe and you arrive here I think immediately you are drawn You be, there is an argument that you could be a target um, depending on where you're moving around the city so you know not to go to certain areas, certain zones you know not to do certain things, um, like being by yourself at certain times of the day. You know not to travel to certain places. However, within these places, there's definitely that people living, and there's definitely um, that chaotic kind of sport that's occurring. It's just, unfortunately, we don't, being where we are and what we're doing, we don't really experience that too much. But I'm, I'm very sure and I greatly believe that here in Mexico, unfortunately, due to the lack of structure, due to the lack of organisation um, from the top down, that for every player that does make it professionally, um, there must be hundreds, if not thousands, of other players that might have been able to do that because they were on that same ability or better ability when they were younger. And I do greatly believe that. You only have to look at the size of the population of Mexico um, to understand that that must be um, a reality. As we wind up, what makes a, a, a good youth team coach? What makes a poor youth team coach? Um, for me, I implemented a kind of a three-word motto in my football school, um, which was educate, experience, and enjoy. And I think a good football coach will ensure that there are learning opportunities um, for all players within their coaching group and that they will be talented enough to be able to challenge every single player or athlete within their coaching group. Um, whilst they do that, they will be ensuring that there are positive experiences, also negative experiences, so they'll be able to make mistakes so that learning opportunities can occur. But above all, a good coach will also be able to ensure that their sessions are enjoyable. 
Um, and really, I do emphasize that enjoyment part when I'm either teaching, because I, as I mentioned, I'm a PE teacher, or whether I'm, I'm coaching. Um, because without enjoyment, there won't be any participation. Um, and that goes across all levels. I would argue all sports, all levels, elite, down to grassroots. Um, and I think, I think if you're hitting those three points, then really that would um, be a great example of, of good coaching. What are your favourite memories as a, as a coach, as a teacher, as a player, as a youth team player? Something that I feel sport has offered me, um, football obviously in particular, is the number of people that I have met um, and probably the social interactions that I've had through the different levels of sport that I've played. Um, and the different times and countries in which I've played at. So sport has been that channel in which I've been able to make new friends, make new contacts and open more doors and then also help me to settle into places. So um, from minute one when I was being selected, obviously you feel like that sense of achievement that you're gaining something because you've represented your city, you've represented your county, you've then gone on to represent uh, a professional football club at youth level. Um, so there are successes and experiences that you've gained through that. But really beyond that, it's the amount of people that I've met and the places that sport has taken me now I can say it around the world, both coaching and playing. So I've played in Spain, I've played in the UK, I've played in Mexico, and I've coached in the US, I've coached in Mexico, I've coached in the UK, I've coached in Spain. Um, really, and I visited through coaching magnificent cities like Barcelona taking a youth sports team, which we did last year, to participate in a tournament that was opened my eyes to the facilities and the opportunities that are on offer for, for young players nowadays. And really being able to gain those experiences, both as a player and a coach, and meet people, have contacts around the world, um, and even to extend socialise with the same people, people that you can depend on that you met perhaps 15, 20 years ago playing a team that you might all of a sudden bump into this time next week that you know you can still depend on them people. So it's definitely the social side of things for me um, and, and very close to that is the experiences that I've gained about both as a coach and a player. So you're a Leeds United fan? Good yes. Golf is champions with the uh, famous Bielsa. Uh, first game of the season yeah. in the Premier League against the English, European and World Club champions, Liverpool. That's true. How do you think you can get on in that match? How do you think, think, think you're going to get on this season? We'll definitely win that game. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> um, now we've got to be, I think we've got to be realistic. Um, 
that 16 years out of the top flight obviously means that um, we're not uh, our our objectives this year have to be that we need to remain in the Premier League. Um, as a devout and loyal Leeds fan, I would be hoping for pushing the top teams, obviously, and trying to compete with them. I'm sure a coach like Marcelo Bielsa as well is not just going to settle for for uh, survival um, because that's not his philosophy. Um, and I dare say that. I'd like to think that the players that we've attracted and brought in right now are, are, are mainly due to him and he will definitely be getting the best out of every single element that forms part of the club. Um, it's quite an exciting time for, for us being Leeds fans. There will also be an interesting matchup between Bielsa and Guardiola who have very similar coaching philosophies. There's, there's, I mean, you look at the Premier League these days and it's attracted nearly all the best players. Um, probably the two standout stars that aren't competing right now are, are Messi and Ronaldo, maybe put in there kind of Mbappe. You never say never. I think Messi was very close to arriving in England. But yeah, coaches in terms of Mourinho, Klopp, um, there's some fantastic coaching talent there. Um, and Bielsa's now competing on that level. Um He's definitely going to provide um, fantastic kind of um, experiences this year in the Premier League. Looking forward to it. Mike Licker of Foot Academy. Thank you so much. That's okay. Thank you very much, Taylor, for inviting me. This has been a Half Court Press production by Teo McLeod.